come to the third and final part of our study of the book of Job. It's not been an easy journey, perhaps, for, for some of us, well, for all of us, because it's a complex book. It, it gives us many challenges that we have to wrestle over, but there's a richness to it as well, and it's a voice for today. So let's just continue and see what God can, can speak to our hearts as we read his word and as we begin to consider it. When we read Job, we're we're walking two uncomfortable paths towards clarity. We're walking uh, with Job through his own wrestling to understand what's happened in his life. We're also, though, perhaps walking our own path of wrestling towards understanding with what has happened in Job's life. We spent uh, two weeks raising and attempting to answer some significant questions. Questions about God, questions about Satan, questions about faith, about friendship. And all the while we're acknowledging that the book of Job doesn't always answer those questions or even give us the clarity that we might want. Questions we asked, for example, like why did Satan have access to God? We discussed that last week and the week before. We went into it in good depth last week in our church service. Uh, Questions that follow on from that, like was this kind of access limited to the time period of Job? Or, Or do covenants that God has with humanity, do they change the kind of access Satan has? the kind of access he has to the throne room, the kind of access he has to people. Well, we can see that according to the text, God permits Satan access to Job's life and, of course, to that space of dialogue. Why? Why does God permit Satan access to Job's life? The only conclusions we can come to with this are that that God wanted the world to see the true mission and purpose of, of Satan. What is the mission and purpose of Satan? Well, it's to steal, to kill and to destroy. And that part of of pushing back against Satan's claims that Job was only faithful because of God's blessing in his life, part of part of that pushing back against those claims was God choosing someone like Job. Someone that God knew would hold to faith even in the midst of the fiercest trials. So that perhaps answers some of the questions that raise that are raised from, from this idea of Satan having access. I, I read in one of the commentaries a few weeks ago, which I found very helpful as well, it was this idea that God chose the very best to teach the world something about holding fast, even when 
The questions can't be answered this side of eternity. God chose the very best of, of people. Satan's convinced that people are shallow and, and self-centered, that they'll betray God when things get tough. Whereas God is convinced that Job will show that people can hold to faith even through the harshest trials and even through the unanswered questions. What does this do? Well, we mentioned last week as well that this, in essence, proves that Satan is a liar. That he's a liar, that he doesn't have a true grasp of the potential of humanity. He's only interested in the destruction of humanity. That God can reveal something of uh, of humanity in Job's life. And ultimately, this theme of of holding fast to faith and trust even through the most harsh moments, perhaps also a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus Christ. Another question that were raised, what did the interaction between God and Satan reveal to us? Well, chapter 1 verse 12. Chapter 1 verse 12 shows us. God says, very well, the Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. Satan can only operate within the parameters that God sets. God is ultimately in control. Then that bigger question that we always ask uh, of the text of Job, but we ask just generally in life, why do bad things happen to seemingly good people? Well, we considered the the reality that we live in a fallen world, a fallen world influenced by people's free will and influenced by a broken creation. And that it isn't just people's actions and decisions that are influenced by sin, but actually the whole of creation is impacted by the consequence of the fall. Because why else would God need to create a new heaven and a new earth? Everything is tarnished by by the fall. And and when we dig deeper on that, we know that that is simply the consequence of, of rebellion against God, that nothing is left untouched by it. Even the heavens weren't untouched by this rebellion. We know that before Adam and Eve rebelled, Satan rebelled. This idea of walking away from God and living contrary to God's ways has has wide-reaching impact. Wide-reaching impact. Perhaps we can relate to that in some way in our own lives. Last week, we also considered how Job's friends tried to make sense of what was happening in Job's life. That, That their faith structure believed that Blessing was the result of righteousness and that disaster was the result of wickedness. And we we acknowledge that there is a lot of truth in that, that blessing can be the result of righteousness and that disaster can be the result of wickedness. But we also emphasise that it's not as simple as that. You see, Job's friends also believed that if someone was suffering, that it was always a direct result of that person's sin or wickedness. But 
you know, whilst that might sometimes be the case. I mean, I know for me, I've made mistakes in my life and, and I've had to pay the consequence of those mistakes. We've all made mistakes that have had negative consequences. Everyone lives with the damage caused also by other people's wickedness. But there's, there's a bigger voice than that. As we've mentioned, there's the fallen nature of the created world. And therefore, when things go wrong, sometimes it's just a consequence of the fallen nature of the created world. And then there's the spiritual battle between God's will and Satan's will. And that is revealed in chapter 1 uh, and 2 of, of Job. We see that. Ultimately, there are times when we need to remember that we know only in part and we see only in part that, that things happen for a reason that God can understand and see, but perhaps we can't. We closed last week with looking at John chapter 9 verses 1 and 2, this fantastic little dialogue uh, between the disciples and Jesus when they see a, a man born blind and, and the disciples ask, is it is this blindness because of his sin or his parents' sin? And what does Jesus say? He says, neither. He says, neither. This happens so that the glory of God might be displayed in him. Now, we don't, for one minute, suggest that the answers we find in Job to the questions that are raised are absolute answers. There are questions that still remain. And perhaps once we answer one question, a bigger question arises out of that. But part of our maturing of our, our faith is, is digging into these bigger questions and being willing to journey with them. So to this week's focus, to Job's friends, to Job himself and to God, what we see in this is that Job's friends do one thing really well, but they also do one thing really poorly. And we can learn a lot from this Today, we don't need to look too far in, in life to see someone struggling with challenges caused by the brokenness of this world. And we know from the last 12 months there have been such uh, instances of brokenness around us. Yes, of course, with, with COVID, with people that have lost loved ones or people who have been impacted with ill health through this virus. But perhaps we might argue more so with the impact of lockdown on mental health, on, on marriages, on family life and finances. I think that everybody has been impacted negatively over the past 12 months. And so we don't need to look very far to see someone struggling. We also don't need to look very far to see someone processing trauma. Trauma that has been caused either by their own poor choices or by the poor choices of others. Not just those things that are far beyond our control. For example, things in the natural world. And when we're reading about Job's friends, it's helpful for us to consider how they supported Job or how they didn't. And therefore how we can support others. We see that they did one thing right. What did they do that was right? Well, I would propose that they were there. They were present and they listened. I think we all understand that sometimes 
the hardest thing to do is to get alongside those who are, are grieving because it's not a comfortable space sometimes to put ourselves in. It places a demand on us as friends. It's the kind of demand that only true friends respond to, and that is to be there in the midst of someone's darkest moments, willing to process the hurt and the questions with them. And in that, we see elements of the fruit of the Spirit living in us, this supernatural ability to love, this supernatural ability to be patient, to simply be there can be an example of supernatural kindness and self-sacrifice. Has anybody had a friend like that in life that has been there for them in those moments? So they did one thing right. They were there. But they also did something wrong. And, And that is that they only shared from their own assumptions. They listened, but they didn't hear. What we have is this dialogue between Job and his friends devolves into a back and forth of accusation. They're convinced that Job's disaster is a result of his own sin. And that forces Job to dig deeper into this battle and wrestle with God himself. And we'll come to that more shortly. Job's friends were there, and that's great, they were there, but but it's what they were doing there that shows us how not to support our friends during a time of, of trauma. What if they had truly listened? What if they had spent their energies on holding Job up rather than dragging him down? We're not here, though, to place all the blame on Job's friends. I think we could say, if we're being gracious, and we should be, that they did the best they could in the moment with their limited understanding. But there's more going on than just Job's friends. Job, too, was caught up with this retribution theology box that we might we might frame it as a box where they had basically built these parameters that they felt only God was only going to operate within those set parameters. He's caught between this place, Job is caught between this place of, of longing to worship God because he knows that God is, is all-powerful, he's the giver of life, that he's sovereign over all, but he's also in this place of confusion and frustration. Now that's fair enough, we can understand that, he's been through incredible trauma, so he's caught up in this place of confusion and frustration because the God he thought he knew doesn't fit in the box that he had made for him. Chapter 16 of Job really unpacks that in quite a significant way. Job spends many chapters trying to justify himself before God because he can't make sense of of why a good person like him should suffer. And this wrestling causes him to lash out at God even demanding that God would explain himself because the God that Job thought he knew was not operating in the way that Job thought he should. Chapter 31 really helps us uh, to understand that very dynamic. 
31 verses 3 to 6 and then 35 and 37. 31 verses 3 through to 6 says, this is Job speaking, Doesn't disaster come to the unjust and misfortune to evildoers? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked in falsehood or my foot has rushed to deceit, let God weigh me on accurate scales and he will recognise my integrity. So the implication here is that God is not weighing Job on accurate scales, that God has somehow misappropriated justice or or is, is operating unjustly in Job's life. Further on in this chapter, verses 35 to 37, Job says, If only I had someone to hear my case. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my opponent compose his indictment. I would surely carry it on my shoulder and wear it like a crown. I would give him an account of my steps. I would approach him like a prince. So here you have Job elevating himself and implying that God is the one that is in the wrong. And then after that, a new friend comes into the picture. Chapter 32. Job's other friends have actually given up by this stage because they cannot get Job to agree with their viewpoint. And all the while, there's been another on the sidelines watching and listening to everyone share their perspectives. Now in that, actually, we find the first example of of wisdom. This idea to let everybody else speak and have their say and then offer your thoughts. And that isn't easy, is it? Especially when you're passionate about someone or something. Again, we're seeing the evidence, or we're seeing a, a pointer towards what will become the fruit of the Spirit, that being self-control. Let's read chapter 32, verses 1 to 3. So, the three men, this is uh, Job's three friends, the three men quit answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, son of Barachel the Buzite, from the family of Ram, became angry. He was angry at Job because he had justified himself rather than God. He was also angry at Job's three friends because they had failed to refute him and yet had condemned him. So here you have Elihu being really uh, perceptive. He's he's, uh, managed to astutely understand the, the faults and the failings in both Job's friends and in Job's approach. Elihu, in a sense, brings out a more nuanced voice to the whole picture. That not everything is as simple as Job and his friends have made out. Yes, we we know that God will hold everyone to account for the lives they've lived. If we go forward to 36 and verses uh, 7 through to 12, let's hear this word. This is God. This is Elihu saying of God. He does not withdraw his gaze from the righteous, but he seats them forever with enthroned kings, and they are exalted. 
If people are bound with chains and trapped by the cords of affliction, God tells them what they have done and how arrogantly they have transgressed. He opens their ears to correction and tells them to repent from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they will end their days in prosperity and their years in happiness. But if they do not listen, they will cross the river of death and die without knowledge. God holds everyone to account for the lives that they have lived. But he also operates on a different plane of understanding than humanity does. Verse 26 and beyond of chapter 36. Yes, God is exalted beyond our knowledge. The number of his years cannot be counted. And he goes on to to lay out dynamics of God's power and control and knowledge that are so far beyond humanity. God is not simply a slot machine who who will deal out blessing and cursing based upon human behaviour. That's that's too simplistic a, a perspective on who God is. God is the one who holds everything together and ensures that everything works according to his purposes. So Elihu brings a a more nuanced voice to this, but it's still an imperfect voice. After Elihu has shared his peace, God speaks. Now we've waited until chapter 38, so we've gone up to chapter 37. We've waited all this time to hear from God. And, you know, sometimes I think God does wait. He waits until everybody has exhausted all their noise before he speaks into our situations. He waits until we have exhausted all of our own noise before he speaks into our situation. Where in all the preceding chapters did we see Job and his friends falling to their knees and simply crying out to God for his voice and his wisdom? We haven't really seen that. We've seen a back and forth dialogue and wrestling between Job and his friends trying to work out with their wisdom and their understanding. And yet we haven't seen them simply sit in silence and listen for God. Now, yes, Elihu's brought a a better voice to the discussion, one that reminds Job and his friends that God is just and that also God is other, that he is greater with a fuller perspective on, on all of his creation. But but even Elihu doesn't simply sit down beside Job and put his arm around Job. Even Elihu doesn't hold Job through the midst of his heartache. He doesn't walk with him arm in arm through the very depths of his struggles and out the other side. And so what happens next? Well, God speaks. And how does God respond? Well, God responds in a really interesting way. He responds by humbling those who thought they were wise. He even responds by rebuking Job for speaking to God as if God is an equal. Chapter 38, verses 1 to 4. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? 
Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Job is humbled in this moment because God reminds Job that God is other, that God is greater, that he has a fuller perspective. How does he demonstrate that? Well, he lays out for Job all the evidence for this idea that he is other, that he is greater, that creation testifies to the supreme power and knowledge of God. So we have two chapters of God laying out his otherness. Then we get to chapter 40. 40 verse 1. The Lord answered Job and said, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. And when we hear God speak in this way, we are reminded of one important thing. And that is that we are clay and he is the potter. That said, we might be inclined to hear a certain tone in all that God is saying here. As if God is angry with Job and his friends. And yes, I think there's a degree of that. There's a degree of frustration in God's voice. But Perhaps also we could sense a different tone if we consider a few dynamics here. We saw back in chapter 1 that God saw Job, that God knew Job intimately, that back then he was a God who recognised Job's qualities. He recognised Job's righteousness that he declared these things in the throne room of heaven. So whilst we might think that God is just responding out of anger here, we remember who God is and that is he is personal, that he knows us. Chapters 2 to 37, we see that God has listened and heard, that he's been willing to hear Job's demands. Job's demands that God answer him and explain himself. Now we could also say that the tone that comes across from this is that actually God has incredible self-restraint. Self-restraint from the all-powerful creator who could have silenced Job had he chosen to do so. But no, he waited and he listened. He's a personal God and he's slow to anger. He's also, we see, chosen the right time to speak. The right time to step into Job's reality and and speak. What does that tell us? Well, we see a flash of that with Elihu. This idea of letting everybody speak and get their thoughts out and then coming in at the right moment. And then you see the better example with God. That God is wise to know when to reveal himself. Then there's this dynamic of God reminding Job of the reality of the order of things. You see, every conversation up until now has placed Job at the centre. And now God reminds Job that actually Job isn't the centre of of everything. And, And you know, there's something I think quite liberating about that. 
about realising that we are not at the centre of, of everything. And that even in the midst of trauma, it often doesn't serve us well to fall into what might be framed as, as a pity party, as a woe is me uh, mentality, because that is the breeding ground for bitterness. That isn't to say that we deny the reality of our feelings or the situation, but, but that we are conscious to guard ourselves against falling into that state. You see, rather, God lifts Job's eyes off of himself and puts them back on to God. This dynamic that God is greater, he's more powerful than Job could possibly fathom. So, he's personal. He's wise, he's slow to anger, he's greater and more powerful than Job could fathom. He knows what is best for Job and that is for Job to lift his eyes off of himself and get his eyes back onto the all-powerful God. There's a tone in here which can be found if, if we look. A tone which can be found, a tone which reminds us that God is also Father that he is personal, he's patient, he's wise, he's willing to come down and be in the midst of Job's distress. In fact, he's been in the midst of Job's distress throughout this whole situation. What is the consequence of, of God's loving rebuke? It is that Job humbles himself, honours God and worships God. Now, in the end, Job doesn't get all of his questions answered. And that's hard for us in our contemporary world. Unanswered questions don't sit easy with us today. But the book of Job invites us to find our peace with that very reality. Job doesn't get all of his questions answered, but he does get something that we might say is greater than that. He gets a personal encounter with the God of heaven. He personally encounters the presence of God. And in that, he encounters the grace of God. For God to speak to humanity is for God to show his grace and mercy to humanity. That the creator of all was willing to speak to Job in such a personal way puts things in perspective. We know Jesus shared these words that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is trying to encourage people in that moment, trying to encourage them to raise their eyes above circumstance and look to heaven. What happens now? Well, Job's wrestling stops in this moment because he realises that there is something greater than that which was right in front of him. That there is a supernatural reality beyond what he has seen and known, or at least that he has a greater perspective on the supernatural reality that he's seen and known, and that God is truly worthy of worship. It is human nature for us to want every question answered. And, you know, maybe in the fullness of time, we will get clarity on these questions that can't be answered. But the text of, of Job 
invites us to find our peace with knowing that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Whatever those purposes may be. To what end? Well, John chapter 9. To display the glory of God in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the chance to journey with Job through this text and also journey with you through this text. Father, we know that you give us clarity, but we know that there are questions that remain. Father, help us to live with those questions, all the while praising you, worshipping you and honouring you for who you are. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you.